protects the expectation these days. And I think the relationship side of business has taken a backseat to that. Industrial revolution, everything was about mass production. We kind of lost that corner store mentality, and which was the relationship building, um, treating your customers with love and care. And I think today, not many people do the relationship side well. And so I think if you can combine the two, you've got an incredible opportunity to be a great business. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now one of the things that I notice a lot in talking to people about influence and influencers especially those that have managed to redefine or reinvent an entire industry, is this assumption that it must be sexy, right? Like the, a bit like the hero's journey, only in a really cool t-shirt. A one-way upward trajectory where you can always see the light beckoning at the end of the tunnel and everything that you try either works, provides an answer to what will work, or provides you just with this really amazing story that you can tell over cocktails in your super cool office. Yet never, never in 20 years of working with and talking to influencers have I ever heard that version of events. You know, usually it starts with this really vague feeling, just a nagging thought that something is missing, a product, a service, a conversation, and then begins this seemingly never-ending process, especially for founders, of figuring out, well, what happens next? And that generally involves years of starting conversations that you have no idea how you're going to finish. Experimenting with strategies that you're not sure you even understand. Selling ideas or products you have no clue how you're going to build. And then sitting on the office floor once everybody's gone home and trying to remember why you started. You know, I saw, I saw a diagram on Instagram the other day, one of these memes. And it was two, it was two pictures. And one said what we think success looks like. And it was just a line going from A to B upwards. And the other one was what success actually looks like. And it was just the squiggle, you know, it looked like a seven-year-old had grabbed a crayon. And in my experience, that is about as true as it gets. For my next guest, for today's guest, that squiggly line began in a garage and then a camper van and then became one of the fastest growing online wine retailers on the planet with an annual turnover already of more than $50 million and a global tribe of wine lovers who, and trust me, I, I know a few, cannot stop evangelizing about their love for all things MoFo. As co-founder and CEO of Vino MoFo, the company in question, my guest today, Justin Dry, has done what, what many would have probably said was impossible. Reinvented one of the oldest and most weighed down in tradition categories on the planet, wine. I first met Justin when I was asked to interview him on stage at an event and so much gold came out of that conversation around what works but more importantly what doesn't when it comes to starting, scaling and hacking attention that all I remember is walking away feeling like, why didn't we record that? And so we did. We got back together and we did and in today's conversation we go hard into the incredible unexpected journey of Venomofo. Now, I don't always dive into backstory, it's just not that kind of podcast, but with Justin, I did, and for specific purpose, 
how grassroots storytelling is at the heart of building any tribe. Practical tools on how to use online platforms to gain traction, including when to and when not to double down on a particular platform. What he sees coming next when it comes to capturing online attention. How to translate what works in a traditionally face-to-face, i.e. high-touch model, such as wine, and then move it into digital channels. How to manage the issue of control. This is a huge one for a lot of organizations right now when it comes to creating a culture where everybody is responsible for building digital engagement. His favorite and most expensive mistake. I love this one. And what it taught him about being a grown-up. And how the five love languages has transformed the way that Justin manages Team Mofo. You know what I love about Justin and the Vino Mofo story is that it's not only a story about being willing to back yourself over and over again, which is key number one when it comes to influencing anything or anyone, but that it always comes back to how many times you're willing to get curious, reset, follow your gut, and then ask the question. Now, before we get into it, a small shout out finally to Justin and his amazing partner, Asha, who just last week welcomed baby Matisse into the world. She is gorgeous and it is hard to imagine how much wine has been consumed in her honor over the past seven days. Congratulations, guys. Enjoy the cocoon and the caffeine. So no more delay from me. Pour yourself a glass, pop yourself a cork and enjoy my conversation with the head mofo himself. Justin Dry. Welcome to the podcast, Justin Dry. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Now, we first met, actually before we'd even met, I felt like I, I knew you. We have so many connections in common, but we first met in person um, at a conference where I interviewed you on stage and I got so much out of that interview that I came off stage and I was thinking, damn, why can't I use that for the podcast? <laughs> yes. And, and so here we are. Here we yeah. are doing it again. Excellent. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to chat. And in our lives in the in the meantime. There's been a bunch that's happened. <laughs> I was actually, I'm glad that we're doing it now because there's been a bunch that's happened for you um, that we get to go into. So let's let's just... Let's just jump straight in. Can you start with just talking about, I love this story that you tell about the lead up to Vino Mofo, like how this journey began with a number of misfires before the before the real shot. So uh, the wine thing uh, for me was uh, in my DNA. I had um, some ancestors plant some of the first vines in the Barossa. Uh, so I guess it was always around the family. Uh, I had a couple of uncles that worked in the industry and were like super wine nerds. So every kind of family event that we went to, I was kind of force fed wine from a much too young age. And that, so like I was 14, 15 and, and being asked to do blind tastings and tell them kind of great variety region and vintage, which was ridiculous for someone who didn't drink. But um, that was that was the experience. Um, fell completely in love with it. By the time I was um, 18, I gave up my first birthday. Uh, which was going to be like a keg party my parents were going to throw for me and pay for, and I gave it all up to use the money for one bottle of wine. Do you was... still have that bottle of wine? I drank it. You drank it, okay. <laughs> I drank it. It was, a, it was a bottle of Penfold's Grange, and it was a, it was a 1977, which is my birth year. 
And so I was, it was, I just really wanted to try an expensive bottle of wine, like a really expensive bottle of wine, which I wouldn't have been able to afford for many years after that. So uh, that's what I did. And then I studied wine at uni. Uh, I went and studied wine marketing uh, out at Roseworthy campus, which is like near the Barossa. I shifted over to do some winemaking. I didn't finish that, but ended up working, finishing the marketing degree and then going into the wine trade. And I was holding wine tastings for people. I worked in a wine shop. Uh, so very much, I did a couple of vintages. So very much wine, wine, wine. Uh, and then I think when I was about 23, I decided that maybe wine was a passion, not a profession. Uh, you know, I wouldn't give up drinking wine. I'd definitely drink lots of great wine, but maybe there was something else. Uh, I was always interested in, you know, business um, and, and finance growing up as well. So I studied financial markets and became a stockbroker for a couple of years. That was in like 99, like the tech boom. So everything I touched kind of turned to gold, which was awesome. I looked amazing amongst all my friends. Uh, and then I was also there for the tech crash in early 2000s. Uh, so it didn't look as amazing um, and I didn't find it as much fun. So I was like, I took whatever little bit of money I had left and I went and convinced the guy to sell me some land and I did a property development. Um, I, I don't know how I convinced him. I didn't have enough money, but no money down, signed the contract, um, got some plans done, uh, got an agent to pre-sell them land and build uh, kind of settlement uh, with also no money down. I got the planning uh, approval from council, um, pre-sold them, made lots of money uh for something i'd never done before i don't know how but anyway i did and then i had another parcel of land next door to that uh developed that uh and made a fair bit of money uh so you know mid late 20s um i had the houses i had the cars i had all the toys um and then uh towards the end of that decade i lost all the money <laughs> um see this is this is part of your journey that i didn't even i didn't even know so you by the age of 30 you had had made and lost an a minimum a minimum of twice uh yeah I, I the first one was the first one I didn't uh, was like the share market thing and that I'd made a fair bit of money but I didn't lose it all so I I lost I lost a chunk of it <laughs> which was disappointing but then the property stuff I lost it all I was like I I went guarantor for someone I cared about deeply and um and that didn't work out very well so I had to give back everything um unfortunately and from someone who was you know mid late 20s to having all the things to end of 20s having none of the things <laughs> was a bit of a shock and I was like I you know what this share market thing this property thing I'm not sure if that's for me anymore I want to get back into wine and that was the start of the journey back into the wine industry and it started it, tell me if I'm wrong with a com conversation with you and your brother-in-law yeah so I when when I'd just gone through um that yucky period I um uh, went traveling uh, South America. I for six months, you know, everything kind of just came down at the same time. And my mum got sick. I lost everything. My girlfriend left me. <laughs> All the good things. Um, and so I was like, I've got to get out of Australia for a little bit. And uh, went traveling through South America, backpacking. Um, and over those six months, I ran into a couple of American travelers who I became quite close with. And they introduced me to this thing called Facebook. And um, it wasn't over here yet. It was kind of still just kind of college campuses. And uh, they invited me uh, to be part of it um, so we could stay in touch while we were traveling. 
Um, and I was like, I think this might be kind of big. Wish I'd tried to find a way to invest, but I didn't. Uh, came back to Australia going, and I guess over those those six months when I was traveling, I was like, oh, I think this Facebook thing is going to be kind of huge. Uh, I really want to get back into the wine space. So how about if I kind of combine the ideas and do like this social network for wine lovers um, and wine lovers of kind of my age group, you know, kind of the, the younger the younger kind of wine drinker. And so when I came back to Australia, I was having a Christmas lunch with my brother-in-law, Andre, and uh, after a few bottles of wine, we were talking about um, different businesses and it just so happens that completely independently, he was working on another idea in the online wine space, which was like a customer review site. Um, and he had never launched anything in the kind of online uh, space or wine space before. And um, I came back with this other idea like Facebook for wine. And after a few bottles of wine, probably a few too many, um, we decided that would be a great idea to go into business together. Um, and that was the launch of the first one, which was called Quaff. And that was basically a Facebook for wine with customer reviews. So we just combined the ideas into one. And where did that where did that take you? Uh, it got us an audience. So it, the business model kind of sucked. Um, it was we basically niched Facebook into such a small audience that you can't really make money through the traditional kind of advertising um, methods. And so we, and it was also very early in that kind of social space. It was like 2006, seven kind of time. And, you know, so the people that we were trying to get to pay us to, to be a part of it were wineries. And it was very early for wineries to understand social. And so no one was that keen. So, so we built this great young audience of wine lovers who loved the way we talked about wine. You know, it kind of came from uh, me, like, I guess, growing up in wine, working in wine, doing vintages and studying it and being pretty nerdy for like, you know, for such a young guy, I knew a fair bit about wine. You know, there's lots of people that knew a lot more than me that were older, but for my age, I, I knew quite a bit. And so I would be walking into like these like independent, more interesting wine stores that you do when you get nerdy. And I'd be feeling intimidated because it'd be like this old guy with rosy cheeks and a bow tie behind the counter um, who got his entire self-worth out of making you feel small from knowing more than you. And it was just that's the way the wine industry kind of was back then. Um, it's evolved a lot over the last kind of decade or two. But I was thinking at the time, you know, like if I feel intimidated walking into this wine store, imagine how other people my age feel uh, that don't know as much. And so that was kind of like, we, we need to start talking about wine in a different way. We need to get rid of the, rid of the bow ties and the BS around it. You know, you can still be super passionate and wine nerdy, but not be a wanker. That was basically the brand of Quaff. And that's what we started talking about. Andre was very aligned with that. And uh, so I think we we got some traction because there was, there was this huge audience of kind of young wine lovers that didn't want to talk about wine in the same way that their parents did. And so Quaff for that first kind of year got some really good traction. There was lots of reviews. Um, There's probably 30,000 people that signed up, um, but the business model was broken because we didn't make any money. I think the, the first year we made $30,000 before expenses between two people. So pretty average Christmas. Yeah, that, that, that makes living in, in any city. I was about to say in Sydney, but in any city, fairly challenging. So before, you obviously pivoted, but before, before I get to the pivot, talk to me about the camper van. 
Oh, yeah. So that was stage two. First year was quaff, and then I went away for a Christmas break because, um, you know, my business partner was married to my sister. So, like, it wasn't just my Christmas that sucked. It was, like, all the family Christmases. So, we're, like, going away for Christmas, I was like, oh, God, you know, we need to do something. We need to change it up. And uh, I was laying on a beach somewhere, and I came up with this idea that I came back and pitched Andre after Christmas. I was like, hey, I've got this really, really good idea that I think would work. And he's like, okay, tell me about it. I was like, I want to buy a combi and travel around Australia visiting wine regions and surfing. How do you feel about that? <laughs> and he was like, um. Surely at this stage he's, <laughs> he's avoiding you at family functions. <laughs> yeah, he probably should have. But um, long term it ended up okay. But, yeah, at the time. And he was like, I don't see the business model. I was like, yeah, neither do I yet. But um, let's have a talk about that. And we decided that we would, um, uh, if we did it, we could potentially get sponsorship, you know, if we filmed it. So we decided that we'd film this whole thing. We'd buy a combi, we'd do it up, um, we'd do the backstory with that, and then we would go on this great adventure around Australia, visiting all these amazing winemakers and wine regions and telling that story and trying to get sponsorship and audience, et cetera, to do that. Uh, he actually agreed. And um, his, his idea was around the filming. So, like, this is great. Maybe this would, one, be fun and, two, get a bigger audience. So we started the journey. We uh, looked for a combi to buy, but we didn't have much money. So we tried to find a really cheap combi. Uh, a friend of a friend of a friend uh, knew of this combi that was in the Barossa, and we thought, oh, perfect. It's in a wine region. It's, um, you know, it's in a paddock somewhere. We'll go and have a look. It was for sale for about $500. Uh, well, you know, hopefully it just drives. And so we went down there and it was in this oh, lemon orchard, should have been a sign. Um, and uh, there was grass all around. It hadn't been driven for I don't know how long, but it looked like it was almost dead. And we're, I'm, you know, we're looking around this car and trying to like suss it out. We knew nothing about cars. We were, you know, had no experience with them. So I'm like walking around, like kicking tires, wondering like, you know, I don't even know. I've seen people do it. I don't even know what it means, you know. And so, and all the while we've got this camera on us and I go to open the sliding door on the side of this car and it bloody falls off. And I'm, and I, so I'm holding, in, while it's being filmed, I'm holding the entire sliding door, which has come completely off the combi. And I'm like, that's still good. It's still good. I'm trying to put it back on. And, uh, and we're like, we ended up buying it because that made sense. And so here we are, we've got a $500 combi that doesn't go with a door that's fallen off take it back to Andre's. We um, towed it back completely illegally and then got back to his place and started doing it up. And that was the first one. Uh, I think, you know, three or four months in, we still hadn't got all the rust off and we didn't know what we were doing. So we like gave up on that combi, uh, went online and bought another one, sight unseen. And uh, that was in Sydney. We flew up to Sydney, uh, the car wouldn't start. We got the RAA or the equivalent of that to start it for us. So we delayed another day and then eventually it worked. We drove up to the Hunter Valley and we started filming the show, which was uh, ended up being called Road to Vino. Um, and Road to Vino ended up traveling around Australia, uh, meeting all these amazing winemakers and you know visiting these incredible regions and telling the story about the people and the place. And it was one of the most fun things and times um, I've ever had in my entire life. Because you've got the... The two parts to that, I'm just thinking while you're talking, you know, you've got Quaff, which taught you about, you know, building an audience, however, you know, it'd be too niche and not monetizable. 
And then you've got Road to Vino that taught you, I'm guessing, a lot about grassroots storytelling. I mean, what? let's go into that. What did you learn about storytelling during that period? Look, I think it was um, – there's a couple of things that Road to Vino did. It was um, – falling even more if it was possible in love with the people and the places um because you're you're having an opportunity to really dive deep and spend time with people and and listen to the history um and the stories and so i think that was really powerful and and the passion and love for the people and the place and the industry became even stronger um the other thing it did was it created this incredible network um, of producers because quaff got us an audience um, Road to Vino got us a network of producers because we basically sat down and went, all right, so we were like such fanboys of people in the wine industry. We just wanted to do something cool in the in the space. It wasn't like any any greater thought than that. And so when we sat down to work out who we were going to film, we are like, all right, so we're going to pick all the absolute legends of the industry, the people like the late and great um, Peter Lehman, you know, Brian Crozer and all these other amazing people that mean a lot to people um, who know the industry and then the other part of that was we chose all the up-and-coming rock star winemakers. We would talk to the industry bodies, we'd talk to people in the know, we'd talk to the legends and say, who are the most amazing people coming up in the industry right now? Who are the people doing really fascinating things? And we would build this list of these people that we really wanted to get to know and hang out with and tell their stories, and then we'd approach them. And, you know, when, you, when you've got a camera and a sound guy, and you're filming this show about this great wine adventure, you get in front of a lot of people quite easily. And so, um, and through, you know, friends of friends. And so we ended up filming this amazing show and hanging out with these incredible legends and kind of up and coming rock stars who have since turned into the legends of the industry because it's quite a while ago. So it was just such a beautiful, amazing experience and such a great opportunity to become really close friends with so many amazing people. And so you you took those two things. You took the storytelling. You took the you took the audience, and from that became Vino Mofo. One more between that. <laughs> Does it involve lemons? Yeah, no, it involves mobile check-in apps. We built an app uh, that, we, and it was so funny because we went to SA Tourism in order to get some sponsorship and bring it um, bring the show to South Australia because we actually started in New South Wales, and uh, so I was on the way to the. On the way to the meeting, um, on the way to pick up Andre before we went to the meeting, I was playing around with like this mobile check-in app, which was called GoWalla. And there was two back in that day, um, but Gowalla was, uh, was one of them. Um, and the name escapes me of the other one, oh, Foursquare. So Foursquare and Gowalla. And what's later become, you know, how you can check in with Facebook um, and other apps to a location. Um, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I wonder what you could do in the wine space with this. And, you know, Road to Vino was going well, but it wasn't making Christmases much better, to be honest. And uh, so I started playing around with the idea. And by the time I'd got to Andre's place to pick him up, I was like, hey, I've, like, I've got this idea. I think we should play around with this. And we, got, we started talking about it and got really excited. And between leaving his place and arriving at SA Tourism, we changed the pitch from trying to get funding for the Road to Vino show to get, try and get funding to create something called the Great South Australian Wine Adventure, which was a mobile check-in app where people would travel around the state checking into different wineries and once you checked in, you get an offer from the winery of something special, whether it was like a back vintage tasting or a deal to buy wine, etc. cetera. And, um, and so we pitched that and it was completely new. We pretended that we'd been working on it for a while and it was almost done. 
Um, and then they said yes. <laughs> so we, we went in for, I think, asking for 25 and they gave us 50 and um, about the, for this new app that apparently we'd built. And so then they were like, okay, so how this is really exciting. We're super behind this. Um, how long until you're done? And we're like, oh, you know, four weeks. <laughs> so then we leave this meeting with a 50 grand check and four weeks to build something that we hadn't even started. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in here. Firstly, I just I love that. It's, there's a love-hate relationship between me and my team because I have the theory that you, you sell it and then build it as opposed to, to build it and then sell it, which I think gets a lot of people caught in the mud when you're trying to build before you sell because you're missing that vital piece of information, which is feedback. Yes, 100%. Now, I, I want to go very quickly into that, and I'm, I, I want to make it brief because we've got this the entire Vino Mofo journey to get to yet. But that's twice, at minimum twice, I've heard you mention that you went in, pitched something, and got more than you were hoping for from a very short pitch. So... Talk to me about pitching. Give me a golden rule that you use for pitching because obviously you do it well. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? So I, I've actually never been asked that. And uh, let me think. Uh, I I reckon the reason it worked back then, uh, because we didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest. Uh, you know, we've got a lot better since because we had to go through, you know, different um, processes and rounds, et cetera, as we've got bigger. But in the, at the time, I think it was just because we were very confident and we were super passionate and we were very excited. To be honest, I think it was. I think the um, the teams that were listening to us got caught up in our excitement and the story. Uh, that's probably that's probably as much insight as I can give you at that time because I, I tell you what, the pitch deck wasn't great. The because there was it was non-existent. The uh, you know the thought process or the the practice wasn't there, so all the things that you would normally do really well in in with a little bit of experience, I we didn't have. I think it was just the fact there was a couple of young wine lovers that were doing interesting things that were super excited and passionate about the space and the industry and could tell a good story. Well, I think you've nailed it just there. It's story based. You pitch it around a story, and I think that that's you know. That's what we buy into, right? We buy into a story, a compelling enough story. All right, so let's let's move into Vino Mofo. So you you've gone various journeys, camp, quaff, camper van, check in app. What was the moment? What was the moment it pivoted into Vino Mofo? So it was, I guess. So you had the quaff, which was building an audience, the road to Vino, which was building a network, the uh, the check in app, which then went national. Um, did both of those things, but it also introduced offers or deals. And so, and there were the things that actually kind of helped that part of the business take off. And we're like, okay, cool. So each of these things have got better and our Christmas is slightly better every year, but nothing has really kind of hit a home run yet. Nothing was the one. But we had an audience, we had a network, we just needed a business model. And so um, once again, you know, taking some time off, which was not a lot, you know, maybe a week or two at a time, and uh, thinking about the, exactly that, you know, we had this incredible audience, we had this um, great network of wine uh, of wine producers and absolute rock stars, and um, but we didn't really hadn't nailed the business model. So I guess my interest in like tech and business, I kind of grew up um, um, heavily interested in those things. Um, I came across this company called Groupon which was the fastest growing uh, business in the history of man at that time. This is like 2010. 
and what they were was like group buying, which was huge in you know 10 and 11 and then um and that kind of similar to what the daily deal space was but it was kind of based on group buying and so and we're like oh god all right so this is pretty interesting because this is absolutely taking off around the world um and there being kind of local um similar models in different spaces but no one had done it in the wine industry so there i was i was like all right cool we've got an audience we've got a network we need a business model this business model seems to work so maybe if we did kind of like the Groupon for wine. I went to Andre and said, hey, buddy, I've got another idea. Um, and said, how about we do like the Groupon for wine? So like wine deals. We've got the audience, we've got the network, and we can just add the deal space. We've been lacking a model um, that really works. This one can. And his first answer was, no effing way. <laughs> um, because... The, uh, we've got three, we're currently running three businesses, Justin. What the hell are you thinking? And I was like, yeah, but this one might actually work. And, um, and he was like, oh, um, that's a good point. So let's explore that. And so we started talking about it. And I think our biggest fear was the connection with like deals space kind of felt very bargain and bottom end of kind of, um, you know, product range. And we had only ever dealt with, um, talked about, filmed, uh, the kind of premium, super premium end of the market, the ones with like, you know, small batch, interesting, or the kind of legends. And so kind of doing a bargain basement deals kind of thing didn't really work for us. Um, and it, and we weren't super interested in that. So then we're like, well, what if we did it in the, the right space and kind of we could convince our friends to give us these wines that had never been kind of offered in that way before, um, then that would be interesting. So we tested the theory, called up a few of our friends and um, got uh, got them to agree to offer their wines at prices be never before seen um, without any guarantee of any sales <laughs> because they were our friends and uh, a couple of them said yes and so that's that was the birth of Vino Mofo. So that was in like late 2010. We built the site and launched in April 2011. Um, and it was originally going to be called Vino Mojo. Um, there was this whole trademark thing, um, which is a funny story if we've got time. Go for it. Okay. Uh, so two days out from launch. So we'd, Andre camped the art with the name Vino Mojo, get your mojo working, um, which was the kind of the line. And uh, we were ready to go. We had social pages <clears throat> built. We had our mailing list done in terms of emails because we'd kind of transferred from all the different businesses over to this new thing, which was like had a countdown, you know, 30 days, 29, 28, um, launching Vino Mojo, get in early for, you know, foundation membership. It was all about this amazingly exciting thing that the wine space had never seen before. Um, get in early because um, if you do, then you'll be forever a part of the um, foundation crew. And so we had, you know, thousands of people signed up we built, it was getting like super exciting. There's a bit of talk um, it would, that this thing was coming. Um, we'd shifted most of our team across to this new project and um, two days out from launch, which was a Friday, we we're gonna launch on the Sunday night. We get this really thick legal letter and um, which scared us because we never got thick legal letters. Um, we opened up this thing and it was a trademark infringement notice and it was, uh, from a company that owned um, Mojo, the term Mojo. 
around uh, wine. They had a wine brand called Mojo Wines. It was a public company, I think, at the time, and it was uh, in a different category, but they, I guess they were claiming that there would be some confusion around the brands because we were going to be called Vino Mojo, and they had a wine brand called Mojo Wines. And we're like, oh, God, two days out from launch, and it was basically saying they were going to get an injunction to stop us trading. So here we were, super excited. There was lots of noise in um, in the space. We knew that there was other people that were we're going to follow pretty quickly because, you know, it became more and more obvious that the timing was right for this type of thing. So we're in a tremendous amount of, you know, we're in a tremendous hurry. And here we are getting an injunction to say, we're going to stop you trading. Um, or you have to change the name. So we called our like really cheap solicitor uh, because we had no money. And uh, we're like, what do we do? And he said, well, it's in a different category. Um, so you'll actually win. But uh, they're going to be uh, they're going to be able to get an injunction for the court to hear the case because they've been operating for five plus years. Uh, they don't need to prove that it's an infringement yet. What they have to prove is that they've been trading and there's a there's at least a case to be heard. And so they'll be able to do that because the judge will be very much like, well, you've been trading for five years. I'm not going to risk making a dismissal on this. I'll wait to hear. And so we're like, oh, so what do we do? And he's, and he's like, we'll change your name. And we're like, oh, God. Um, so the two choices were change your name or spend anywhere between, you know, six months and a year and a half um, waiting to hear whether or not we'd won. And, you know, go through the whole process, spending all the money. So what we did is what we usually do when we have big business decisions to make. And that was we opened up a couple of bottles of wine. Um, and we decided that we would try and come up with a different name that was close enough to the original name so our graphic designer didn't have to do too much work maybe change a letter and people that received the first email didn't kind of go oh who the hell are these people with a completely different name had no kind of connection to it so we were like well, if we can just get something close to vino mojo then it won't be such a shock and we'll probably get away with it um and let's so let's see how we go so you know bottle down and we're like oh, vino moto vino modo and then literally like a couple of bottles in um, and, you know, probably in our finest form, I'm like, why don't we call it Vino Mofo for the mother that are trying to steal our mojo? And so, and so that's where it came from. It was, it was calling the people trying to steal our mojo Mofos. And so that was Vino Mofo. I love that story. I know. And then, and then and we were like, oh, we can't. It's so crass. That's not. And we were like, and, you know, what will people think? And we were like, oh, but it's pretty funny. Like it would be, it's kind of funny and we'll tell the, this whole story on the about us page and it will be like a kind of, it'll be like a great story. Um, and then when we win, we can change it back. Um, and it's, it's a nice kind of, um, you know, salute to the people that, um, are not being super friendly. And so we were like, cool. Um, Vino Mofo it is, uh, we launched it the two days later and it just took off. And, you know, and people love the story. It fits so nicely with our no bow ties and BS kind of attitude to wine. Uh, it made us stand out, uh, it, you know. And so I think it was one of those things that happened that were fortuitous and, and unplanned, but a beautiful thing and, um, and, in, and incredibly impactful to the brand and the growth. And, and you know, lesson not number one, but for Vino Mofo, lesson number one, that the power of, of human language the power of using language that actually cuts through. Exactly, exactly. And then, um, and then our members were like, and we we kind of thought, oh, well, we'll when we win, 
uh, we'll change it back. And so we start we we started the fight, and then we fell in love with the brand, and our our community started calling themselves Mofos and Mofets, and we were like, oh my god, you realize what you call yourself? But they did, and they loved it, and uh, and it, and so here we are going, oh my god, we actually love the brand, and. I think Andre was still keen to turn it uh, to change it back, but we stopped fighting it, and we kept getting these documents and all these like things that were obviously part of the case, you know, like these old financials and proof that had been trading, and and we just didn't reply. We didn't spend any money on it, uh, and then literally, it's so funny. About two years later, we get this letter saying, "Congratulations, you won the trademark." Oh wow! Yeah, and we didn't fight it. <laughs> A little bit late off the mark there, and you know. Yeah. You know what else I love? I was talking to a um, an incredible brand director out of New York a couple of week weekends ago, and one of the things he was saying, he said, "You know, I feel like brands and companies spend so much money on data and research and and customer surveys, and and he said, and honestly, if you want to know what kind of cut through your brand has, what kind of resonance it has, buy two piles of t-shirts." One with your one with your brand name and logo on it. The other one with your competitor's brand name and logo on it. Put them on a street corner for free, and just see how many of each T-shirt gets taken. Oh, really? He's like, yeah, because if your customers are willing, to, are willing or enthusiastic about branding themselves with your name, wearing your name, then that's as much information as you need. Yeah, that's cool. And so, that's if your customers are calling themselves mofos, well, then done. Yeah, exactly. And and. Yeah, exactly. That's a, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Now, what's what do you think was one of the most important decisions? It might have been the name, but what are the most important decisions you made early on in terms of getting traction? In terms of getting, I think we kept it simple early. You know, I think part of the beauty of what we did was it was super simple, easy to understand, but powerful. You know, and I think uh, I think as we've grown up as a business and we've become definitely more complicated because you have to, and the the model had to evolve because the market evolved. Um, I think one of the one of the key um, elements to the brand and to the business has been its focus and simplicity. Um, so probably that, like you know, a- avoiding having to do um, and be what other people were expecting you to be, and I think. Also, you know what? The, the ignorance we had <laughs> of the space and the time uh, were really beneficial. You know, like we didn't we didn't know it well enough to know. Like this was our, you know, this was early into our online kind of experience. Um, we'd never really sold much wine, and it was much more recent. Um, we didn't understand. You know, we didn't live and breathe and grow up. I guess in the industry, we kind of fell in love with it and were connected to it, but we didn't know the complete ins and outs um, of it. So I think um, a little bit of that ignorance kind of came in. Like we didn't know what wasn't you weren't supposed to do. You know, we didn't know what was like. Oh, this is the way that you we've always done it, kind of thing. I think we um, kind of looked at it and approached it with really fresh eyes. And I think that really helped and enabled us also to get that kind of simplicity and a focus that um, previously wasn't there. I think you're right. You know, when you when you start out in business or when you when you start, when you're trying to scale, it's easy to get caught up in the shoulds. You know, there's a, there's a lot of shoulds, that the way that we've always done things, the way that things should be done. Specifically, I find around online storytelling, actually. You know, you, you should be on this platform. You should be on... I, over there you should be doing ads you should be snapchatting if that's even i don't know if that's a if that's <laughs> yeah. even a word um i take it from your response it is not a word 
no, no, yeah, I'm no. gonna go with it. No, no, not when I've heard, but you know, you go um, from, from this point on. Yeah, well, I think you've just created it. Um, It'll be I in the dictionary. Exactly. I think there's, um, uh, I think there's something really scary uh, that happens in business when everyone starts agreeing with you. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I actually do. It's like when when you're doing the things that are expected. And when you're doing the things that the majority think are the right way to do things, I, I think you're heading for some trouble um, because I think the, the people that do anything interesting are early and then they kind of get the benefit of the, the growth to the majority. And then as soon as the majority are agreeing with you, you're in serious trouble because you, you need to be changing it up. And so what's your – I mean, we'll just get super practical with that for a second. What's, what's your recommendation? Do you – do you take one or two established channels and double down and then also keep some budget aside for something that's new or emerging? Do you go hell for leather on new and emerging? I think it's a little bit – so I always go early. So I, I'm I'm actually good at um, – so there's people that are bleeding edge and that pick things up like super quickly. Uh, I'm like in the very early majority kind of well, – or not even before early majority. I'm in like very early adopter but not bleeding edge. So I pick things up as they're already getting the traction if you are in the know. And so then I jump on those early before they hit the early majority and majority. And so I think that's what has uh, we've done really well over the years, even before Vino and particularly with Vino. Like we went into Twitter and Facebook super early and we were on those platforms. As soon as it was possible to advertise, we were there and we were getting customers really, really cheaply. And then as people start hearing about or seeing or talking about the successes early, then more kind of money flows in. <clears throat> and then what happens is the more money flows in, they start the stories start spreading, the bigger players start coming in and it gets more expensive. And then the even bigger players go, oh, God, we've got to shift some digital spend, but it takes time. Uh, and so then they start doing it over time and then they see the early traction for themselves compared to the kind of broader um, above the line stuff and they go even deeper and spend more and then the platforms get expensive and then the small guys start going, it's really expensive uh, and then the platforms go, how do we now make it a little bit kind of cheaper or more interesting because we've got other competitors that have come in the market and so they start releasing new kind of additions to that platform which is where you then have an opportunity to go in early again. So I think for us it was identifying it early before the majority which means it was made cheaper, going as hard as we could on the ones that made the most sense until they were tapped out, you know, turn them on until they're completely tapped out, then look for the next most next platform that makes the most sense. So for us, Twitter was like amazing, um, but we got turned off for a while there because they weren't sure how to work with the alcohol thing. Um, and then we got turned back on, but really early we're getting such great return on that. Then Facebook, we were very, very early and, it was insane um, compared to today um, what you could actually achieve with limited budget on that platform. You know, now and then obviously it's moved to kind of Instagram. Uh, everyone's talking about TikTok at the moment, um, but, you know, that needs to age up and mature um, and develop. But that's um, probably that's my philosophy. I like I try and identify the things that are starting to get traction, go in early enough to get the early benefit um, and go as hard as I can on those up to a point where it doesn't make any more sense and then you try and find the next thing after that. You know, we're talking about platforms and, and different types of platforms, but you know, a platform can be here or there or nothing depending on the quality of the storytelling that you're using. 
what have in terms of cut through in terms of what actually gets attention and converts that attention into some form of action which is what you're looking for what what are the golden rules that you've learned about storytelling on these platforms uh yeah it and it did I think one of the golden rules is each platform is very different and the intention um, and consumption, I guess, of the, the user is very different on each. So the expectation around that platform um, is different. So you need to develop content that fits within that um, intention. And so I think, you know, if you're looking at, uh, if you're looking at uh, the, a particular platform, you've got to go, all right, what is this audience actually looking for? How much time are they spending what, what kind of, you know, how quickly are they scrolling? How much time do you actually have to grab the attention? What is the uh, content that's actually performing well? And then I think, you know, it's super important to as much as you can segment. And, you know, there's there's so many things that go into that in terms of, you know, availability of budget and team resource, etc. But I would rather spend the money on creating multiple pieces of content um, and going out at smaller levels, more targeted and testing and then turning up the winner than going a bigger, more creative, um, more um, expensive campaign. So I think it's probably one of the keys. I understand where and why they're there um, and then develop content for that audience for what they're actually looking to engage with at that time. Uh, you know, and that's pretty basic, but it actually works. Um, what a couple of the, you know, short video is long video does not work um, or very rarely works um, compared to short video. You've got to be simple. You've got to be um, engaging and, and quickly. You know, you can't you can't leave the important stuff or the engaging stuff too far down. Um, and so I think uh, I think we've learned that and we've and we've actually uh, use that knowledge to um, decide what we're going to be putting out there on each of those different platforms. So you'll notice that a lot of our, we've got this video that we do um, called No Stupid Questions. Um, and, you know, it used to be called something else much longer, um, but No Stupid Questions is the, is the wording that has worked best, which we tested. And the videos are getting shorter and shorter and shorter because the attention span or how much time people give to things um, in the Facebook feed um, is is reducing. So we're so you can see how we are crafting our content to suit. I, I love that specifically because I'm sat here almost like high fiving myself because the I have a theory at the moment that some of the most compelling contents or stories online are question based. They're based around questions you take one to five questions that are utterly compelling for your target market, your tribe, your avatar, whatever it may be. And you just create content based around answering that one question, that simple. And that seems to get the most amount of cut through. And I was going to ask you if you'd found that and it sounds like you have. Yeah. And also I think, uh, I think a lot of people uh, make the mistake of, uh, I think they're, they're trying to, or, the intention behind the content that producing is to sell, and so I think if you're if you're if you're able to get the attention um, and engagement on something that is not salesy, 
um, it just leads to consideration and brand awareness and then later down the track can lead to the conversion that we all hope happens, you know? And so I think when we go no stupid questions, um, which is, you know, we've done similar things over the different platforms over the years, but this one works because it's very simple. It's no stupid questions, um, which is easy to understand. We get the community to uh, give us their um, question, which they may have been worried about asking someone, um, and then we answer that. And so you get the engagement from the community early, um, and they're contributing to the creation of content, and then you answer it in a, in a non-fluffy, non-wine-wankery kind of way, um, and it's a question that probably a big chunk of people wanted to know, but were too scared to ask. And that content's going really, really well for us. High value production or not high value production? No, God no. It's um, we have uh, it's super quick, super easy. There's there's uh, you know a camera and sound. Uh, there's one guy that operates that and just uploads. It's very simple. It's done very quickly. Minimal editing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, actually, if you go, <laughs> here's a really good example of just going early and learning. If you go back and look at No Stupid Questions, the videos that we've done and uploaded, we've just redone our um, YouTube page, so I think they're all there now. And uh, you go back to the old ones, you'll see the different, um, uh, what's it called, gradients over our videos. And there's like some really dark ones, there's some really bright ones, there's some ones that are, you know, really hazy. Like, it looks terrible. You, if you line them all up in, in one line and look, per episode, you're going to see how we were testing and changing things um, with very low budget. Yeah, it's always version 8. That's I, – I don't know how or why, but it, it always seems to be version 8, which is why you need to get three versions, 1 to 7, as quickly and with as least resources as possible. Talk to me about your favourite mistake. I mean, you've, you've been on this journey now for, what is it, seven or eight years? I have – a favorite mistake that I that I hope you're going to tell, but I'm actually going to I'm not even going to prompt you. I'm going to see. Oh God, there's been so many. Don't test me like that. Uh, <laughs> my favorite mistake. Um, oh God, I don't know. What were you going to say? What, what, what <laughs> see, this is the advantage of having interviewed you before. I have I have some of your stories up my sleeve, and I've got a short term. A very my short term memory um, is not so good. I, I I'll prompt you the. The story that I loved, the mistake story that I loved that you told me last time we had this conversation was around the time you took on board investment. I don't know if it was the first time, but part of the conditions of that investment was to do, I think it was traditional advertising, put together a traditional advertising campaign. Oh, the big ad you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That wasn't part of the conditions. That was just our stupidity. Um, so, <laughs> so what we, oh, God, you're going to make me talk about this again. I um, So... Okay, so we. we raised- I think it's important. I'm going to stop. I think it's important. I think it's a really important story. I think it's important for two. One, because we all make mistakes, and let's just get that out there. And the other, the other reason I think it's important is because your entire success, if you look at it with hindsight, is built around what I would call a new world of influence. You know, storytelling, human language, personalized channels. Um, question-based, and you took this deviant route away from that back into traditional. Yeah, terrible decision. And it turned out to be a terrible decision, and I just think that's that's really telling. For anybody who sat there telling themselves that usual stuff around, if only I had a multi-million dollar budget, if only I could, you know, put together this ad and reach everybody at the same time, 
that's why I think it's a really crucial story. So I've, I've ramped it up now. You, okay, you so, so through the pain, um, I will speak. Uh, so what happened was we had got to, we'd always grown um, quickly and profitably with Vino. Uh, and so we never really needed to take on investment. And uh, when we, in about 2012, we actually did sell a majority share of the company to another uh, company called Catch the Day uh, in order to scale quickly. You know, we didn't need the cash, but we needed to get in front of as many people as we possibly could really quickly because there was other competition coming and we were, we were getting kind of bullied by some bigger players in the industry. So we did that. We stayed with them for about a year, bought ourselves back. When we bought ourselves back, we had a few little investors come in uh, that uh, we needed to because we, you know, we bought it back for more than we'd sold it, which means we had no money again. Um, and then, uh, but we had a few um, investors come in to help us. That was the only time we'd ever raised money before, and that was to buy it back. Uh, then fast forward, next couple of years, we win all these awards for the fastest growing tech company in Australia. You know, we had a growth rate on 1800% or something ridiculous. And we, it was just a beautiful time to be alive. And then in about 2000 and late 2015, uh, we we decide that um, maybe it might be interesting to kind of raise some money and even double down further and get even bigger and take some money off the table. Um, because, you know, after that point, we've given our money back. We had no money. We had this big business. Um, but it would be nice to take a little bit off the table, help out our families and, and give back to the early shareholders um, and also be interesting to kind of see what we could do with an even bigger budget. Uh, we started chatting to some uh, VCs. There was a lot of interest. Uh, we settled on one. We raised uh, 25 million, and all of a sudden we had a lot of money. And we took a big chunk of that off the table and distributed it among shareholders. And then we left 10 million in. And with that money, we invested. Uh, we, we decided that we'll go. We'll double down in Australia. We'll launch some overseas markets, um, and we'll and we'll. Uh, turn up the, the digital channels. Here we are. We're a bigger company now. We've got much deeper pockets. And we're like, we have to grow up as a business. So we started talking to different creative agencies and advertising agencies just to get them to pitch to us what we, um, what, you know, different kind of campaigns that we could go with. And, you know, we're, I guess we kind of were thinking, oh, my God, this is like we're actually, you know, growing up as a business. It's what you do. You speak to creative agencies. You, you speak to the, the big ad guys and, and, and you know, craft this huge campaign. And, um, but, you know, we were also very torn. So we've got this like, oh, the expectation is this. Um, which was completely away from our DNA, as you you said before. But there was we had this expectation of maybe oh shit we need to grow up we need to have all these professional people and you know these the big C suite and the and the things that kind of big mature businesses do. Uh, so we had that, and then we also had this kind of thing. We've always been digital, we've always been social, we've always been community focused. Um, that makes the most sense to us. But then we're getting pitched by these agencies, and um, the two paths we could have taken were double down, create more content, um, segment, 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 um, and go hard on that, turn up all those channels in that way, which we were definitely kind of favoring. Um, and there was lots of very deep conversations around that. Um, but we got caught up in the other side and decided to go with um, uh, an agency that was pitching a big ad a big above the line spend because we thought that's what, you know, you, you know, we couldn't see how you could turn up to digital channels 
enough to spend the money um, or you would quickly lose, you know, the efficiencies and spend. Um, and we we're getting told about this halo effect of a big above the line campaign that would drive better efficiencies down below in the digital. Um, and we ended up making this fucking big stupid ad um, that was uh, really expensive, over the top, um, too much kind of, you know, BS creativity thrown in um, and just did not deliver. At what point did you did you have that realization? Was it while you were making it? Was it just a sneaking feeling, or was it afterwards? Uh, look, it was. I even look. I I remember um, chatting with Andre and saying in the early days of seeing these agencies because I was still very much I want to go digital. That's definitely in my DNA. I'm like I still want to be heavily focused digital, even if we do with, go with a bigger campaign and a bigger agency. It needs to be digitally focused. Um, uh, Andre's more the other way, and he was um, he was he's more creative kind of film kind of guy, and so he was a bit more that way. So I remember saying, I feel like these guys just want to make a big ad, and a big TV ad is not the way I that I feel comfortable with. And um, but we got caught up in the process. So I think early I saw the signs, and I went against my gut. Um, and then throughout you know, through the process, I was like, I don't know. You just get caught up and wound up in this thing, and then it's already started. So you. You don't know if, you know, it, it's already got momentum and it's already happening. And then um, by the time we were actually uh, filming the ad, uh, you know, we we're going to do different cuts for different platforms. But the main piece, um, you know, it was being filmed in New Zealand that, you know, the cr- felt like I was, you know, felt like we were filming a bloody movie, like with the amount of people that were involved in this thing. And I was sitting there then going, oh, God, oh, God. Um, and then it just you know, kept piling on and, um, and oh, it kept, ex- oh, it was just a terrible, terrible, you know, you knew, I knew, I knew early and I knew definitely um, at a point of no return. Um, and then when it happened uh, and we got the, the, the creative um, and we're creating the, the budget, uh, the kind of spend, the advertising budgets, I was like, oh, I don't know if it's going to work, but you know what? I've never done it before. Maybe this is what happens. Um, so I'll, I'll benefit the doubt. We're committed. This is what we're doing. Let's get behind it and um, do what we can to get the best out of it. Um, and, you know, far, far out. I'm, I've never done a big above-the-line campaign before, so maybe this is the stuff that you do and it's going to, you know, just be incredible and the efficiencies down below that with the digital channels are going to be insane and it's going to all be worth it. Um and so we launched it, did it, spent a lot of money, um, and we did drive some efficiencies in the digital channel, but nowhere near enough to pay for the actual ad. But that's the it's the seduction, right? It, I think that that seduction applies to businesses big and small, that if we could just spend more money, you know, if we, if we could just buy more attention in one kind of huge, great big chunk of a way, just yeah, throw I- some cash at it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, it becomes, you know, especially when you, when you do raise some serious money or have access to some serious resources and you move away from what you know, or you move away from what your gut is telling you and your experience and your DNA in a business, then it's a really dangerous time, you know, Um, because there's the pressures of, you know, we're a couple of guys that, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. I had my first business when I was 10. I had another one at 14. I, you know, I've probably had 10 or whatever businesses over that journey. I've had some really good successes, but I've always behaved 
or believed and had a philosophy of, um, you know, profitability and lean. And then you have a big chunk of money and you're like, I'm not used to this. <laughs> what, do you, what are you supposed to do now as a grown-up business? And I think we went away from our guts and made decisions that we thought we were supposed to. And I wish I could go back and slap myself in the face and go, no, um, don't do that. Learn, like, I mean, great learnings, but I'd prefer to go back. You know, people say, oh, yeah, I never regret anything. I regret that. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think it's BS when people go, I have no regrets. It's, you know, we can't change it, so we learn from it. But reality is there's regrets. Um, and I do have regrets around that. I wish I could go back and say, listen to your gut, Justin. Don't make this decision. Fight it. Um, you know, go with what you know um, and be agile and fast and lean and don't get caught up in it. I wish I'd done that. I wish I could do that, I should say. Yeah, I think there's many entrepreneurs that say they have no regrets or CEOs. If you reround to that moment when they sit down and look at that P&L for the first time after the decision, it's, it's probably a very different feeling. You know, one of the things that you guys just have nailed and do extraordinarily well is that the the combination of high tech with high touch you know you've taken what was traditionally a face-to-face interaction most people don't know a lot about wine they go in they ask questions they purchase a bottle and you combined it with tech and you just you do that so well to the point where you know I've, i've spoke to a friend of mine who's a huge customer of yours and i asked her yeah i asked her about it and she she actually used the language. I'm not joking. She used the language, my friend Nikki. My friend Nikki calls me every three months or, or whatever. The She's not going to thank me if I, if I go for a short period of time there because it just makes it look like she drinks a lot of wine. But she uses that language. And I thought, that's incredible because you've you've taken that high tech and you've not ignored the high touch. You know, you've also got this underlying sales culture there that backs up the high tech what have you what have you learned about getting that right getting that interplay right oh there's so much there um okay so firstly i think like tech's the expectation these days and i think um and i think the relationship side of business uh has taken a back seat to that and i think you know industrial revolution everything was about mass production etc cetera, etc cetera. we kind of lost that corner store mentality and which was the relationship building um treating your customers um, with love and care, et cetera, et cetera. And I think then became, you know, you've got the industrial revolution, the mass thing, which was all about low cost, um, you know, and, and low cost production and very little touch. And I think you add in some tech and we're like, oh, we still need to evolve that for more personalization, but um, we're going to rely on tech and more and more. And I think today, not many people do the relationship side well. And so I think if you can combine the two, you're really, you've got an incredible opportunity to be a great business because tech is becoming easier and easier and it's delivering a better and better experience. But because of that, so few people actually focus on doing the other part well, which I think is super important. And as, so there's there's that layer, there's that one layer. And then the second layer, which is um, around about how you motivate your people to look after your customers. So when we first launched the broker service, which is what you're talking about, Nikki, um, we've got um, a whole bunch of people that kind of are personal wine brokers. And so if you're interested in uh, a phone call as opposed to an email or a message, et cetera, then we have people that will look after you 
um, as your personal wine broker and only call you when there's something that's interesting or you call them and if you're looking for something in particular. So when we first launched that, that was in 2014, I think, and a tech company launching a phone team. <laughs> was, <laughs> was well, it's, it's completely unheard of. Exactly. But exactly. Most companies are trying to scale to the point where they can abolish all form of communication. Exactly, and, that's, and that is the way most people think. And so we were like, well, we're going to go against that and we're going to introduce that and see what we can do with it. So we tested it with um, just a couple of brokers at the start. Um, and it, wasn't bec- it was because we had, um, even though we're a young brand and, you know, in terms of, you know, Vinamofo is more about an attitude um, than an age group. So it's like people that are a bit adventurous, um, you know, it's, it's more of an adventurous wine lover than it is um, an age bracket. So, you know, so we've got young all the way through to much older. Um, and so I think there's a, a part of our audience that wanted to talk on the phone. And so we were getting asked about it and we're like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Go complete opposite way of every other tech company in the world and introduce one-on-one phone calls. And so we're like, well, let's test it. And so we tested it in 2014 with a couple of people and it worked really well. It worked really, really well. And we're like, oh, that is even more uh, fascinating. So then I started expanding the team as I do. I went, right, cool. One or two works, cool. Let's do 20. And so we did, <laughs> went up to 20. And then um, I was started to get, like, there was a lot of great feedback, you know, like people like your friend, they're like, oh, this is, you know, they're taking calls and saying to their friends, oh, this is my personal wine broker. Just give me a second. You know, it was really important for them to have that moment and, you know, talk wine. Um, with the personal wine broker, it was a beautiful thing and it was really personal and um, there was a lot of love around it. But however, when I scaled it to 20, I'd never run a phone team before. And so I was like, all right, how do you pay them? You pay them on commission, which is pretty standard. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we'll pay them on commission. But then when we scaled the team up and they were calling more people, we started getting some feedback from a couple of our close um, uh, mofos because we're such connected community that a lot of them still were very connected to me. And so they would, uh, you know, get a message or a, through social or et cetera, and it just be, it feels a bit pushy. And we're like, oh, God, that's the absolute opposite of what we started this for. We don't want to be seen as being pushy um, on the phone. We're not that type of phone team. This phone team was set up in order to serve the people that wanted to talk in that way. I'm not someone who loves phone calls, so I probably wouldn't have done it, but um, there are people that love that way of communicating So, um, and getting that personal experience. So that's why it was set up. So I'm like, oh, God. So a lot of people are loving this. Some people are going, actually, this is not for me um, and I don't like it. What are we doing wrong? Let me explore that. And what I kind of discovered was the team, the way they were incentivized was around commission. What does that mean? <laughs> the more they sell, the more they get paid. And I was like, okay. That is not what we're trying to achieve. What are we actually trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve this beautiful customer experience and be there for the people that want it that way. And so I started playing around with some ideas and going, how about if we remove commission? How about if we work out who's getting paid the most in our broker team based on commission and say we're going to pay everyone that um, and then no commission? So you're going to get paid more than you ever thought you were going to get, but... you're you're not no longer getting any commission on that so and your entire job is to make the customer happy so instead of trying to get a sale just try and deliver a really happy customer and let's see what the impact is on their spends lifetime values etc and happiness over time and so i tested with four of the 20 um of the brokers we had 
tested, you know, I didn't want to completely change the team in case it completely ruined everything, but I tested with a few of them. Um, and the results, we separated the cohorts of customers and then we uh, had a look at the results. And the results were there was uh, over, I think it was almost over 40% uplift in lifetime value of our customer by just making them happy. So no commission, paid really well, just to make our customers happy. Um, and so I was like, oh my God, this is pretty fascinating. So just by making your customers happy, they spend more. It's not rocket science. It makes sense, right? And and the experience got much, much better for the for our MoFo. So I rolled out and crossed the entire team and saw the same result. There was this huge uplift. It was um, in the vicinity of about 40% uplift in lifetime values by just making them happy. And then we did this, um, uh, we, we looked at, uh, our entire uh, customer base of MoFos <clears throat> and then kind of measured this, uh, what we call the MoFo happiness index. But it's like this level of happiness by the customer. You know, it's, you know, NPS is part of that. And we looked at each of the customer segments based on their level of happiness and literally going from a 70 to a 90 is double revenue and triple the referral. That's incredible. It's insane. And what you didn't do, and I think that's important to point out, I was talking to a to an entrepreneur a couple of days ago who had spent tens of thousands of dollars building this particular back-end tool for his business and he put it out there, some customers gave him some negative feedback on it and he shut it down. And what you didn't do is take that feedback and shut it down. What you did do is get curious, get forensic about it to see if you can figure out what worked about it. Yeah, exactly. And what was possible. You you mentioned the word love in that and it's it's one of my favorite words because I just think it has such such cut through in business and is so highly underrated. But using love internally, you and we've talked before about the fact that you've taken one of my favorite books, which is The Five Love Languages, and you flipped it and you used it internally, which was the first time I'd ever heard anyone do that. Can you you walk through how you've used that? Yeah, of course. So that was um, – I remember talking to you about this. The uh, I... You just totally blew my mind with it because I use it on a daily basis within my, my marriage. In fact, my husband and I were just talking about it this weekend. I've never heard of anyone using it within their organization. Yeah, so – um, for those that don't know, it's your it's um, your language of appreciation. It's this test you can do online. There's a book as well. Uh, it's super simple, super quick, and it's the language of appreciation of whoever's taking the the, the test. And um, and so it's recommended for um, relationships to understand what the language of appreciate love language is for your partner, so you can deliver that experience for them as opposed to the one that you have for yourself. Because I think as humans, we have a tendency to want to give. Um, and we believe that it's um, that the most uh, impactful way of doing that is the language of love that is most important to you as a person. So quite often, if it's like you know, acts of service is one of the love languages. So if you're an acts of service person, uh, it means that you want to say, let's go, like organize to go and pick something up for your partner and deliver that, and that's kind of like an act of service, like do the washing, do the cleaning, mop the floors, pick up the kids, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So there's acts of service, there's, um, from memory, acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, touch, and gifts. They're the yes. five. Yes, good. Um, and I, I always start those. I'm, I always start saying that, and I'm like, I've got to hope I remember that fifth one. Um, but anyway, um, so that so it's really a powerful for relationship. And I first came across it within that environment, and I was like, this is really really powerful. But we decided 
to bring it into our workplace. So I, I asked my um, exec team to all do the test, uh, which this was going back a few years ago now. But so there's a couple of tests that we, um, we've found really important um, in our workplace. And one's StrengthsFinder through the Gallup Institute, and the other one was Love Language. And so we did it in, inside our, our business. And what's important and powerful about that is, one, you're introducing them to the concept. So two, uh, so part of that is they bring it into their personal lives quite often and it's really, really impactful in, you know, in, in their personal relationships, which is lovely to see. The second part is knowing someone's uh, love language in a work environment means that if someone's is words of affirmation and you go into a meeting and they're doing great work, you know that the biggest impact you can have on them is to publicly give them praise. So, hey, um, Nikki, uh, that is an incredible uh, piece of work you've done. I love the way you've done this, et cetera, et cetera, in front of everyone. And they walk out going, oh, my God, I feel amazing. Whereas someone else who's potentially a gift, would words of affirmation mean very little. And so the gift thing would be if they've done great work, you'd, you'd find something, you'd buy them something, and you drop it off with a little card saying, just wanted to show our appreciation for you with this little gift. And they feel amazing. Myself, um, I'm acts of service. So that's my top one. You know, most things kind of sit around, you know, the top ones are like eight, nine, 10, 11 kind of points. The ones that don't probably mean very much or very little, are very little to you are like a two, three, sometimes zero. Um, and so right up the top of mine is acts of service. And so if someone before a meeting goes out of their way to go across the road to pick up a coffee because they know I like a coffee at this period, you know, time of the day, and they bring it to me, it's kind of like an act of service for me. I'm like, oh, I can't believe you actually went out of your way across the road to grab me the coffee that I love to bring it to me because you're really thoughtful. So then I love that person. <laughs> I'm like, you are amazing and you're so thoughtful, yet... Um, you know, other other things that they could do for me mean very, very little. Like if you're um, maybe like uh, words of affirmation, not so important to me. The funny thing is, um, and it's so powerful. So that's it's so nice knowing those things so you can mean you can have such impactful conversations and, and improve relationships so, so well, so strongly when you know that and you bring that into the workplace. Um, I, I don't know if I told you last time, but I think I married the only human alive that scores a 10 in everything. <laughs> well, which is good because whatever you go for, you win. So, yeah, exactly. Is, there's, there's that way of looking at it, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my husband is 100% acts of service, 100 yeah. Like if you fold something in a particular yeah. way that he loves, yeah. then unfortunately for him, he married somebody that, that means nothing to oh, really? you could literally take all of my clothes, jumble them up, put them in a pile on the bed and I'd walk past them for a week and probably, I'd probably not even notice what, what tools, what kind of, what, what either tools or platforms are you watching right now? Cause I'm sure that's in the back mind of anybody that's, that's listening. Oh, I think like, um, like Gary is talking about a lot. TikTok's obviously interesting. Um, I think there's still a bit of, um, uh, I think there's still a fair bit of opportunity um, in Insta as long as you're getting in with the newer tools and doing the right creative. But, you know, everyone's talking about TikTok at the moment. It's, you know, reached over 500 million users, which is huge. Uh, it's younger at the moment. Uh, so it's, but it will age up like all of them have. Uh, it's just, and they'll introduce kind of uh, new tools within that platform. So it won't, 
you know, if you look at, I don't know if you've spent any time on TikTok yet, but it's. Um, I haven't. I haven't. I've heard many people talking about it. It's on my list yeah. of things, but no, I'm not that cool. No, you know what? You, you're gonna you, you're gonna feel a bit out of it when you go on it. I swear to God, when I go onto that platform, I'm like, oh god, I feel really old. Um, and it's, but it's definitely interesting. It's blowing up. It used to be the old Musically, and that it's evolved. Oh, did it? See now, Musically. Yeah. My goddaughter got me into Musically. Oh, cool. Well, you, well then you've already used it. It's uh, Musically uh, evolved into TikTok. So it's the same platform. Um, it's just uh, evolved a little bit, and and it will keep evolving, and it will age up, which means it's going to be pretty interesting at some point um, soon for a business like mine. It's very interesting for a business that's targeting a younger audience, or an or an audience that is heavily influenced by a younger audience. So you know, like the if a teenager is heavily influencing a mum or a dad um, for a particular product, then it's super interesting that way. Not very relevant at the moment for the wine space. Um, because of the age um, and the and who we target naturally um, is not that um, age, obviously. Um, but you know, it's starting to age up, so there's more people there. But it's not at mass at that kind of older age bracket yet. Um, and I think you know, who knows? They might do introduce um, stories as opposed to, um, or you know, photos or like at the moment, it's very kind of short video work which is seems quite complicated to an older audience but you know i think when they get a kind of scale like whatever well, you got scale but scale with an older audience they'll see the opportunity there and um and then people will start using it and adopting it and as more people do that then more people will and then you know it's it'll be the same path you know there's a lot of organic reach at the moment phenomenal organic reach compared to the other platforms because They've got a lot of eyeballs, but not enough content, which is what happens to every platform, it seems. You know, lots of eyeballs. We need more content. Organic reach is huge. Then more people start producing because they see the early results and the huge organic reach, which means organic reach goes down. And then eventually it gets to a point of equilibrium. And then all of a sudden they need to monetize, which means ads get in front of the organic reach, which means that goes down. And it's like this cycle that can, can, continues to repeat. Um, and so I kind of see TikTok in that place now. Um, where there's a real opportunity if it's an interesting audience to you or an audience that influences people that are interesting to you. Um, and then the other one that uh, a lot of people are really starting to work out how powerful it is as it moves much more to a content platform is LinkedIn. Um, yeah, LinkedIn, I totally agree with you on, on that one. Yeah, LinkedIn's really fascinating. Uh, I feel, and But once again, um, I think you know that's not an early call. This, is, this has been happening for the last kind of year or two uh, and particularly in the last kind of 12 months. And the organic reach on that is phenomenal if you're producing decent content uh, because there's not enough content for eyeballs because it's growing so well. And uh, I think that'll change soon enough though. It's one of those things like go in, go hard as soon as you can because um, these things don't last. And I think LinkedIn's, you know, I mean, who, who am I to make a call, but I'm kind of, I will, and it'll be like, you know, one to two years um, before kind of LinkedIn becomes really hard. I'd say of all the people to make a call, yours is probably the call that I would listen to. Yeah, you know what? There's better people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Finally, finally, your daughter's due to arrive into this world in five weeks. Five weeks' time. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, Let's say that that she grows up and similar to you, she gets, you know, she decides to start disrupting some things, start reinventing industries what's the one piece of advice 
from someone that's been there, disrupted an entire industry, taken it to scale. What's the one thing that you would say to her? I think the one thing I'd say to her, I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about giving advice to my daughter. I know, I can, I can hear it. Yeah, uh, would be that um, probably don't get caught up too much in uh, what people think of you through the journey. So I, I think you can get caught up in all the good stuff too much, but if you're getting caught up in all the good stuff, you can get, get caught up in all the bad stuff. And I think because you're going to stand out, if you are going to do something interesting, um, you're going to have a bit of a journey with that. And, you know, we've been overly loved by the media and we've been underloved by the media and everything in between. And I don't think, I think as soon as you attach your self-worth to an outside influence like that, then you can be in some real trouble. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for the stories. Um, it was just as much a pleasure the second time around. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.